We'll be reading today from Romans 11, verses 1 through 10. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, who he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Dylan, one of the pastors here. Thanks for joining us for corporate worship. It is corporate and it is to be worship. We don't gather for a feeling. We don't gather for an experience. We gather for worship. If we approach it, and this hop often happens in our culture especially, if we approach it like we're seeking an experience, like we are seeking a feeling, then our evaluation of this time together will likely be off. We will likely be looking, as consumers look to, to be fulfilled in whatever uh, way they want by the product. Maybe we want to be entertained, or maybe we want to have uh, some, some feeling inside of us that we might feel as if we're closer to God. And likely, if that's what you came in with, this won't meet whatever expectations that were brought in. We gather not for uh, an experience or a feeling, we, we gather for worship to ascribe to the Lord the, the value and worth of, of His great name. And that worship itself is not always easily evaluated by experience or feeling or our senses. Like we can't see, touch, feel all these things like other things. We, we gather not to meet expectations of that, but to meet with God. And again, that's not something that's easily gauged by our senses can't lay our eyes on it as we want or touch it as we want. We have to work from some more solid truth. God is the one who meets his people, and he meets his people in one way. He meets them in his word, doesn't he? We, we just said this is the word of the Lord. We know that where the scripture speaks, God speaks. So in other words, when, when scripture is speaking, God is meeting with his people right there in his word, even though it may not feel like what we would have considered worship. It may not give you all the warm fuzzy feelings inside when you just hear God's words spoken, but we are meeting with God himself. And, and in those things, we can't evaluate them well if we come in with the wrong kind of standard, but we can't evaluate them well anyway, because God is doing way more in those moments than we can ever know. And Paul brings something like that to bear in Romans 11. And they're looking around and they're evaluating and thinking like, what are we to do and make of the state of the church? And this church of not just in Rome, but all over Paul is a, is a church that you would say, doesn't it have lots of Gentiles, but the Jews, uh, the Israelites, there's very few of them. And what are we to make of that? And Paul, I think, says we need to be careful with those evaluations because God is doing more and dealing with Israel in a bigger, different way than maybe what you'd think. He, he looks around and he agrees, like, by and large, the Jews are rejecting the gospel. And he's trying to answer the question, well, what are we to make of that? And he doesn't just say, hey, you know what, just base what you make of that on your own feelings and experience in this situation. He gives him more solid tr truth than some sort of human evaluation. He says, God's at work here, and God works in ways that aren't easily evaluated. And so what he gets to do here is he gets to pull back the curtain a little bit and give some solid truth for what's going on. And here's what he says here in these first 10 verses. 
is that God's grace is at work in the people of Israel in a remnant. And what he's going to cite is he's going to cite a few different things to prove this. His God's grace is at work in a remnant of Israel, and he's going to cite some present proof from his own story and some parallel proof from the Old Testament. And then he's not going to leave it at that. He's going to say, that doesn't explain everything. There's not just a remnant going on. There's also some hardening going on, and he speaks to that as well. Paul, in chapter 11, as he takes up chapter 11, he's still answering kind of the, the, the problem that was presented, maybe the question, if you put it in a question in, in chapter 9, verse 30, what are we to say then? That these Gentiles, they didn't pursue righteousness, but they've attained it. But Israel, they did pursue it by the law. They did not succeed in reaching it. Why is this? What's going on here? He, he's answering this. Hey, Israel hasn't attained righteousness. Why is that? And he says in chapter 9, like, because they tried to establish their own. And in seeking to establish their own righteousness before God, their own right standing before God, outside of what God would have for them, they've actually been denying the righteousness that he's provided in Christ, by faith in Christ. He's, again, promoting that there's one way to right standing with God, and it's not through your own righteousness, it's only through faith in Jesus. It's not by works. He says that in chapter 9, verse 32. They didn't pursue it by faith, but they pursued it as if it were based on works. They pursued it by the law. And in chapter 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Here's how you obtain righteousness. You believe in Jesus. But the Israelites, they are a people who not only heard of that righteousness in Christ through the word of Christ, but they are the people that had heard it and rejected it. They had, as he says in chapter 9, stumbled over the stumbling stone. They had, at the end of chapter 10, refuse the held out arms of God. And their stubborn refusal to believe sparks the question that Paul begins addressing in chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? And Paul quickly, and again vehemently, he used this phrase he's used several times in the book of Romans so far, says, by no means, no way. The end of chapter 10 this is a disobedient and contrary people, though God's arms are held out. So has God rejected them? And he says, no way. Rege the Jews, the Israelites here, have rejected God in Christ Jesus. They have heard and they've rejected him. His arms have been held out and they've been smashing them away. They've been denied. But Paul says of God that he hasn't rejected them. In the face of Israel's obstinate rejection of God and refusal to believe in Christ Jesus, God's faithfulness is still upheld. It's as if he's saying that the opposite of God's faithfulness is unthinkable. That's why he quickly says, as he rejected his people, no way. Paul doesn't have to look very far for evidence of this. What does he do in verse 1? He points to his own story. Here's the present proof that God hasn't rejected his people. He says, I myself am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham, a, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is a, a picture of, of Israel. And, and think about his own story. He is a picture of Israel in almost every capacity here for chapter 11 because he's a picture of Israel's refusal of the gospel. Do you remember Paul's story? Here was one who was vehemently opposed to anything that would smell of Christ and the Christians. If there ever was an Israelite that was trying to reject the righteousness that came from God through Christ Jesus and establish his own, it was Paul. He was doing it all the while apart from faith. Look in his description in the book of Philippians chapter 3. He describes a little bit of his own story after, you know, in verse 4, boasting that, hey, if you, you have reason for confidence, I have more because... I'm a Jew of Jews, circumcised, verse 5, on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee. I'm pursuing righteousness by the law as hard as I can. That's what he's saying. And as to zeal, oh, did I want God? Was I after that? Oh, yeah. I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He was pursuing his righteousness and, and zealously pursuing it. And in that zealous pursuing it, he was stumbling over the stumbling stone. What does he say in verse 6? says to the law, he was blameless. He would say in Galatians chapter 1, 
that he persecuted the church and tried to destroy it. Same that he says in Philippians 3, that his zeal is seen in his persecution of the church. This is Paul, the, the Paul who, who could be described as the one who, in chapter 10, verse 2, is how he describes some that have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That was Paul. He was a man who'd heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of righteousness and right standing before God held out in the person and work of Jesus, and he was one who denied it, who, with the held out hands of God, was, as chapter 10, verse 21 says, disobedient and contrary to it. But he was that. Paul now puts himself up in chapter 11, verse 1, as a picture, not only, hey, I'm an Israelite of Israelites, and I followed suit in that by rejecting the gospel, but now here I am, and what am I a picture of now? He's a picture of God having rescued an Israelite. He was those things that he talked of. He was a persecutor of the church. He was that. But Paul now puts himself up as a picture of God receiving, saving, rebellious Israel. He's now one who could say, has God rejected his people? No way. Because here I am. And here he is. is not just one who is a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. But you remember what he also is? Chapter 1, verse 1. He's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He's both of those things, he says. Descendant of Abraham, servant of Christ. I am both those things. See, the power of the gospel had transformed Paul. The risen Christ had rescued him from his foolish pursuit of righteousness by his own means, of righteousness by the law that he could never have obtained. How does he describe this? Well, he says in 1 Timothy, we've read this several times through this book, but it's worth reading again. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, I, but now I've received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus, he came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, and the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And he looks at his story in Romans 11, 1, and he says, So has God rejected his people? No way. I hear Paul is saying, I, I was the worst of Israel. I was vehemently rejecting the righteousness that God was holding out and trying to establish my own, as they were doing too. And in that place, God rescued me and saved me by his mercy. And so what he says in 1 Timothy, when he shares his story, he, he does that to say a little bit more broadly than what he's doing in Romans 11. In, in 1 Timothy, he's saying, hey, I, what, what I want you guys to know is that God saves sinners. Amen. Actually, exclusively sinners, because that's all there is to save. And he says, and look at his patience. I was the worst. And God saved me, displaying that great patience in and through my life. And so what he's saying is, right now, in 1 Timothy, if, you, if you're looking at my story, what you need to know is God saves sinners and he's really patient. Patient. And what the patience of God, the kindness of God is meant to do, Romans 2, 4, is to lead to repentance. And so what do we come in with our story today? Maybe we've had zeal without knowledge. Maybe we've tried to establish our own righteousness. Maybe we've refused the word of Christ. Know today that God saves sinners. Again, exclusively. And even now, there's evident, evidence amongst us of God's patience and kindness. Because if you're apart from Christ and you're drawing breath, he's being patient towards you. And that patience and kindness is meant to lead to repentance. God's saving purposes were wonderfully and graciously revealed in the life of Paul. He was showing that here's a, a, a Israelite of Israelites who was rebellious, and God rescued him. And Paul's point in Romans 11.1 1, is that in the midst of my own stubborn story of unbelief, 
In the midst of God's gracious rescue, here's what we can say, is that God hasn't rejected the Israelites. He's not rejected His people. Paul was an unlikely candidate of all the Israelites for salvation in Christ Jesus as he was a persecutor of the church, blasphemer of the things of God. He was an unlikely candidate in Israel if there ever was one, but God's grace met him in that place and saved him. And he says of that, it shows God, God is not finished with Israel. He's saying, Paul, I'm, I'm present proof that, that God hasn't rejected his people. He's going to go further then. All right, all right. There's present proof. Here I am. But also let's look at some parallel proof of this as well. Paul's salvation doesn't mean that now God is going to save all of Israel. Chapter 9 showed that, that not all Israel is true Israel. And that God's purpose of election is the purpose that's going to stand. But God hasn't abandoned Israel, Paul says. He's still saving Israelites, like Paul, and then he moves to a parallel proof to further this. But verse 2, he begins with this, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Notice what's set in, in opposition here. You have rejection set in opposition to foreknew. In other words, this foreknowing, we saw this in chapter 8, this is not about prior knowledge of something. It's not this foreknowing. It's not about facts or information or details or data. This foreknowing, again, set in opposition to rejection, is a foreknowing of, of people, a remnant of Israel. That's the object of this foreknowing. And it speaks of God's acceptance of them and his saving love for them. Foreknew, as one author said, is, is virtually equivalent to whom he foreloved. God's love is then set on individuals. This foreknowing is a foreknowing set on individuals. And this foreknowing here in verse 2 is really good news for Israel. Because this foreknowing is the guarantee that Israel isn't rejected. If it were up to Israel, they would be rejected. They do not want the Lord. They are trying to establish their own righteousness. If it were up to them, there would be no right standing before God through Christ. But God foreknew. But God intervenes. And God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Within rebellious Israel, there are those that God has not rejected, but the opposite foreknown. And Paul likens the present state with Israel to a parallel state of Israel in the Old Testament. Now notice again, Paul appeals to not something new, not some idea that he's come up with. He looks way back. And he pulls something out of God's established character and word. He does this often in chapters 9 through 11. And this foreknowing of specific individuals within Israel is not a new development. And he gives parallel proof for this. He says, let's look back. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he deals, how he appeals to God against Israel. Paul goes back to 1 Kings, where there's some infamous things happening in the nation of Israel. You might have heard of the name Jezebel, one of the most infamous queens to have lived, right? Like there's, people still aren't naming their daughters Jezebel. She's bad. Ahab is the king, like terrible king. Like this, this is a bleak time in the, the history of Israel for Paul to, to pull out. And then he goes there. And during this time where we have these kind of infamous states, spiritual state of Israel, with a terrible queen and king leading them, Elijah is the prophet. And Elijah comes onto the scene, sent by God, and he, he predicts a drought, and everybody hates him. He lives with a widow of Zarephath, so he doesn't even like, not, not a widow from Israel, a foreign widow, and he lives with her and helps her. Then he, he, he assembles the prophets of... When I first... I got a CD of, from Crossway one time long ago. If you, you remember those? And on it, it had the book of Romans. And I remember look, listening to the, verse, the book of Romans on a CD. And so the guy, when he would say uh, these words, he wouldn't say Baal. And I'm, I'm from Oklahoma. We say Baal. And uh, not like Baal of hay, though. Like the prophet is uh, the prophet to Baal. But he kept saying Baal. So it might be Baal officially. But again, I'm from Oklahoma. So we're going to say Baal. And... and Elijah summons the prophets of Baal, and he has like, let's have a showdown on this mountain, 
and let's see whose God is the real God. So he does that. He duels against them and he, he destroys them, right? Not he, but God's power is evident that there's only one true living God and it's not Baal. It's, it's the God of Israel. And, and then he, after this victory, you know what he does? He flees. Like he doesn't take a victory lap. He runs away. He hides. Like it's a terrible situation because Elijah just seemingly has victory and he's dejected. And he goes onto this mountain and he's dejected on this mountain where God's going to appear to him and speak to him. You remember that he speaks to him in a whisper. And he says, come out, come out to see me. And, and Elijah comes out, but he's so dejected. You remember what he did? He, he like wraps his head. You can't see much when you're wrapping your head. And like, this is how bad his state is. And he goes out where God is. You know, there's a lot of forces at work here to show Elijah, the power and might of God, and in that place he complains. I mean, he's in a bad state, and he complains this, verse 3. Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Like, that's a pretty bleak outlook. I'm the only one, and I'm kind of done. We look at all the potential. We don't even have potential for worship. All the altars are broken down. There's no prophets left anyway. Everything's demolished. I alone am left. And in how long, God? How long before they're going to get me? I'm numbered. You know they're after me. If they can just find me, they'd get rid of me. Have you ever been there? I mean, the, the Scripture speaks into reality. And there's this real discouragement and depression that is heavy over the life of Elijah. So if you've ever been there, you, you can look to the story of Elijah Maybe you can look around the world and think like, we're looking around us and we're seeing a, an overwhelmingly pagan culture like Elijah's. An overwhelmingly uh, culture that is, that is caught up with the things of this earth and not the things of God. That's, that's overwhelmingly caught up with the gods of this world and not the one true living God. We, we can look around and think of the worship of God. And it might look pretty puny. Like there's, there's not much left, God. The, the population keeps growing and churches keep shrinking. You ever felt that way? You ever felt dejected? Elijah feels that way even after one big victory. He has no hope because he says all the prophets are dead, the altar's gone, and I alone am left. But listen to verse 4. What was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God says to Elijah, Hey, I'm, I'm looking at your evaluation of things and how you're sensing things are going, what you're seeing, what you're experiencing. And I've got to say, if it's a big swing and a miss, Elijah, your estimate's a little bit off. I want to adjust the numbers just a little bit because they're a lot different than what you think, Elijah. And he tells Elijah in his mercy, he tells him the true state of things. When he says of him, no, you're not the only one left. In fact, I've kept for myself seven thousand. Big difference. One to seven thousand. That's quite the jump. You're way off. And what this example does, this isn't why Paul points it out directly, but this example ought to give us pause or, or give us some slowness in our evaluations by what we see or what we sense or what we feel or what we're experiencing. One theologian says this, and I think so well. He says, and surely if that celebrated prophet who was endued with so enlightened a mind, was so deceived when he attempted by his own judgment to form an estimate of God's people, what shall be the case with us, whose highest perspicuity, clarity, when compared with his, is mere dullness? Let us not then determine anything rashly on this point, but rather let this truth remain fixed in our hearts, that the church, though it may not appear to our eyes, is sustained by the secret providence of God. We might be surrounded by an overwhelmingly pagan culture. We might have Jezebels and Ahabs in charge and running things or just running loose among our culture and in our society. The people of God might seem few and puny and their existence might seem marginal at best, but that's maybe just our evaluation. And our evaluation is very limited. We have to be careful in our own estimate of how things are going. And we must not hold our own view of the state of things too highly. 
But rather, what we need to do is hold on tightly to and remember God's promises. Like the promise that he gave in Matthew chapter 16, that I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Or like John chapter 10, he's like, I've got sheep that I'm calling by name and they're following my voice. That's what they do. They know my voice. Oh, and I'm going to get some sheep that aren't of this fold. I'm going to go get them too. There's lots of them. I'm going to add them in too. Oh, and by the way, when they get in my hand, no one can snatch them out of there. Or like Colossians 1, I think history is maybe not going in our direction. He says, actually, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. Or in chapter, or in chapter 8 of the book of Romans, right? we could go there forever. You, you think that things aren't working for your good, Elijah? Or you put your own story in there? Think that things look pretty dim? He says, actually, I'm working all things for your good and for my glory. That actually, you think that maybe you're the only one left? Or we're so few and marginal in number? He's actually, I'm, I'm actually bringing many sons are going to be like this Christ, my son. That if I'm for you, then nothing can be against you. That if I didn't spare my own son, how I'm not also going to graciously give you all things. And, and all that glory that I've been promising you, yet you're going to get there. You're actually more than conquerors. And I'll bring you all the way to glory. God says to Elijah, I've kept for myself. And, and that to Elijah is what those other promises are to us. He's saying, look at my work. Remember that. Keep that heavy, weighing heavy in your life. Your own evaluation, that can come and go. That's pretty limited. Keep my evaluation of things, my promises, heavy in your life. So too, God is now working saving, preserving, keeping, upholding. He's doing all these things apart from our notice most of the time. We may not see any of it or just a little sliver of it. We may not feel it, sense it at all. Our, our perception might be like, well, the church is marginal and puny and weak and we're not moving forward and yet God's evaluation is different and better. God couldn't see that. or Elijah couldn't see that either. He's like, I'm the only one left. He says, actually, you're not. And it wasn't dependent upon you anyway. I have kept for myself these things. It was dependent on God and his work. Elijah's gaze was clouded and narrow as is our own. But God's isn't. And we can trust him and his word and his work. And Paul's point in bringing up this time of Elijah is that there's a parallel to that time and the time that he writes to this church in Rome. He says, verse 5, So too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace, as there was then. Elijah's story presents parallel proof of what God is doing during Paul's time. And that this isn't a new development. God has been working this way for a long time. He is saving a remnant by his grace. That's what he's been about. That's what he's still about. Elijah looks at it and he thinks he's the only one. Paul's church that he writes to in Rome might have maybe a few Israelites there with them. They might be looking around like, there's only a few of us. We might be the only ones, but they would be off. Elijah was off. Now here's where he's right. Elijah looks around at the state of Israel and it's pretty bad. And it was. Even with 7,000. That's a bad number. They had all rejected God and turned to other gods. That's a bad number. Paul's looking at his time and he's saying, this isn't a large number. God's still saving some, he's keeping a remnant, but most of Israel at his time as he's looking around had rejected God. Elijah had the same thing. Even after this clear victory, there's only one God, right? Whose God absorbed this offering? Not Baal. My God. And they're not coming to him and saying, how can we know and follow your God? They chase him away. But God had kept some. God had not rejected his people Though spiritual life maybe at Elijah's time was at a pretty low point, God kept a remnant. There was a remnant during Elijah's time, and Paul's looking around and says, there's a remnant during this time too. And this is a remnant that's described like this. They are a remnant, verse 5, chosen by grace. Paul presents parallel proof from the Old Testament to say that a remnant, out of all the people of Israel, that a remnant of them being saved is typical of the work of God. And that remnant is a remnant that is chosen by grace. And that, that they are described that way as a reminder that God hasn't abandoned or rejected Israel. Chosen by grace ought not to be a phrase then that when we look at it, it, it brings us consternation. It ought to bring Israel, Paul, everybody he writes to, 
exaltation. Because in kings, had there not been a remnant chosen by grace, there would have been none left. And when Paul looks around and he sees the state of Israel, had there not been a remnant chosen by grace, there would be none left. Perhaps we might think that we're so different that there's no necessity now for being chosen by grace because we've advanced. But if chosen by grace is not inserted here, then it's clear. There are none who would follow after God. No one is righteous, not even one. They have all suppressed the truth and used it to turn their own and serve their own means. Perhaps Elijah's time and Paul himself and his story are some of the clearest examples of this. But for God, no one would have chosen God. No one would be left. But God has chosen by grace. The question always comes with this, and there's much mystery and difficulty in this, but the question always comes, well, why some and not others? And I don't know. But a better question is, why any at all? And yet, in the midst of rebellion and why any at all, God's grace is active and it's good in the face of outright rejection of God. Like Paul, like Israel during Elijah's time, grace is saving It is keeping, it's preserving, it's holding on to. God is holding out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people, and those hands are doing something. In other words, when we we saw the end of of chapter 10, and his hands are held out to this disobedient and contrary people, we need not imagine that these hands that are held out are hands that are just tied behind his back, like, I just hope and wish that maybe someone would, would know me finally. That is not the view of God that Scripture ever gives anywhere. He's not have hands tied behind his back just wishing that someone would respond to him. He foreknew. He chose. By his grace, God is saving and he's changing. Those hands that are held out are powerful and they're grabbing onto people and saving them by his grace. His changing power is at work in people that are disobedient and contrary. In dead and powerless people, grace rescues and brings life. And Romans has taught us that that's not just the view of Israel, that's the view of us all. And that out of all of us, that not one of us is righteous, God, by His grace, by His choosing and foreknowing, is saving, changing, transforming, upholding, bringing life where there's only death. He's doing it for Gentiles and a remnant of Israel. That's what Paul has been saying all through the book of Romans. From the book of Kings and from Paul's own story, we can remember that that chosen number is not a number that we can gauge well on what the actual number is or the amount of impact that people is having or all the things that we can look at on a worldly standard and say what is going on here because that number is not evaluated well by us. We don't fully know. We see only dimly. And so when we see that, why, why some and not others? We only know that God's doing a million more things than what we even notice. And if we just evaluate it based on our own feeling and sense and experience, we're going to be likely far off from reality that God is working. It's grace. He chose by grace. And it's likely that word grace that trips us up in any evaluation, Right? Here's what I mean. When we, when we see and hear that God chose by grace, we think like, that's it. There's got to be something else. We've been trained that we need to be you know, picked for something based on something. There's got to be something that we bring to the table. Like performance, works, merit. There's got to be something. You mean that it's not based on anything. It's just based on grace. And yeah, that's what Paul says. And he even adds to that to make sure he protects it. Verse 6. If it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If you add something else to it, you actually undo the definition that's there in the first place. It's no longer grace. If you're going to add something to it, you've just changed the word completely. You're talking about something different. Amen. Not talking about grace anymore. But he says, verse 6, no. It's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, when he says no longer here, no longer, that, 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 those words are not temporal words. In other words, it's not saying that, you know, God used to save by works, but now he no longer does that. No, this is clear in the parallels that we've seen already in this verse. Verse 4, he kept for himself, is parallel to verse 5, those whom he's chosen by his grace. In other words, those are parallel terms. It's not as if you 
in the Old Testament, when he kept those for himself, were saved by your works. And now those who are chosen by his grace are those who are graced, saved. Now we could look through any of the book of Romans. Think of Abraham. He says over and over again, it's not by his works. It's by his faith that he was made right in God's sight. So it's clear that there's not a time when they were justified or made righteous in God's sight by works and that, that that's now no longer. No longer is not a temporal reference. It is a logical reference, as verse 6, I think, makes clear. He says, it's by grace. It's no longer on the basis of works. Again, logically, it can't be by works because if that were true, grace wouldn't be grace anymore. Couldn't be grace. Here's the, the blank statement, right? Like, either one is saved by doing something, or one is saved by grace. Either one does something to be saved, or it's a gift of grace. Those are the options, right? That's the relief that Pastor Ryan talked about. There's not many ways, there's only one way. All these other ways are talking about the same kind of thing. Those are ways, they're not ways to salvation, but they are ways. And in relief to that, we have this one way. You're either doing something to be saved, or it's a gift of grace. And here's the overwhelming evidence of the book of Romans, it's by grace. Chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his works. Nope. By grace. Chapter 4, verse 4, we look to this great example of Abraham. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, again, notice the words, not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Or in chapter 9, Paul makes it so clear in chapter 9, doesn't he? Verse 11, he says, Though they are not yet born and had nothing, done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. What's it based on? God's grace. Or in chapter 9, verse 16, he says this, So that it depends not on human will or exertion, on any works, but on God who has mercy. The, the chosen remnant that Paul speaks of here shows that not, God has not rejected his people and the basis of that acceptance of some, the chosen, graced people from Israel, the basis of that is just God's grace and nothing else. And that is actually really good news because, again, if there's no grace there, no one are going to be saved. But as I say that grace is good news there, it's also bad news. Embedded in that word grace is, is good news and bad news for all of us. Because what the good news is, is it's freely given. You don't earn it. You can't work your way up into it. You can't merit it. You can't do something to obtain it. It is freely given, freely received. But here's what it does. Here's the bad news, is that it exposes us. It exposes the, the depth of the problem. The problem is so bad that you couldn't work your way out of it. You couldn't do enough things to have collected enough to get out of it. You can't work your way out. Salvation is by grace, or it's not at all. So salvation by grace is good news. It's freely given and it's freely received, but it's also bad news, and it says that you're needy. Worse than you think. You need grace, or you can't be rescued. No lineage, no pedigree, no works, no resume, no religious achievement will be enough to get you out of the problem that you're in, no Israelite remnant is going to be chosen because they're entitled based on being from Israel or because they have a great line of, of pedigree, tribe of Benjamin. They, they're not going to get in because they've done a lot of works from the law. It's only by grace. Grace says to everybody, to the remnant of Israel, to the lowest of the Gentiles, that you are undeserving and needy before God. But grace also says that then that there's nothing that could disqualify you. Everyone can get in on this. And salvation then is only by grace for the Jew and for the Gentile. And repeatedly, the scripture, as it says here, shows us a God who's going to do what? He's going to be gracious. He chooses some by grace. He will have grace. And it's that grace that God holds out to Israel in the person and work of Jesus. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. That word is going out through all creation. Paul is part of it. And here's what Israel has been shown, their established pattern for receiving this word, is that they won't have it. Verse 7. What then? 
Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? Similar to, to probably hearkening back even to chapter 9, verse 30 and, or 31 and 32, Israel pursued the law that would lead to righteousness, but they didn't succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. That explains why Israel has failed to obtain it, that he's this righteousness, this right standing, what it was seeking with God, belonging before God. They failed to obtain it because they've rejected Jesus. They've tried to establish their own righteousness, not the righteousness that comes from God. What Israel failed to obtain, what they failed by trying to establish their own righteousness, here's what verse 7 is saying, that God obtained it. Israel failed to obtain it, but God's election of a remnant secured it in Israel. He, he goes on, verse 7, The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Apart from, again, that word election there, none would be saved in Israel. So they're trying to establish their unrighteousness. They're rejecting Jesus. But here's the one who foreknows and saves, chooses by his grace, elects and saves a remnant. Apart from being chosen by grace, Israel would have been left in chapter 9, verse 31 and 32, spinning their wheels, trying to obtain righteousness by their own means and stumbling over the stumbling stone. But God chooses by his grace and saves a remnant. This doesn't mean that all are rescued out of their stumbling or that some aren't left in that stumbling and unbelief. The remnant is saved, but he goes on to say in verse 7, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Man, what, what a hard way to end that verse. We've seen so much in chapters 9 through 11 so far, haven't we? That we've seen that in chapter 9, here we have the sovereign God who has mercy on whom he will and harden whom's, hardens whom he will. And chapter 10, it's so clear that you, could, you have what you need, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You've had that word spoken to you. Like you can confess it with your mouth. You have a heart. You have a mouth. You have what you need. It's near to you. You can get this. And yet you are rejecting it. And so it's been clear that what do we have here? Is it God hardening or Israel rejecting? And, and it's yes. Nine and ten. So put both of those together. So, so often. Israel is responsible for their rejection, and, and yet here God is hardening. God doesn't harden here neutral people. He hardens those who are rejecting him. His arms are held out to not neutral people, but to an obstinate and disobedient people. And his judgment upon them, we saw this in Romans 1, is their continued hardening. He leaves them in their hard state. Now in this place, it doesn't mean that God isn't sovereign. God is still sovereign. Verses 8 through 10, I think, show us a picture of a sovereign God in the midst of this hardening. He says, as it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. He again goes back to the Old Testament. He draws from these texts, and these are texts that all refer to God's work. God is doing these things. So in other words, whatever he said in verse 7 about their hardening and, and God's doing of it, he's not trying to let God off the hook. God himself is not trying to be off the hook for these things. It's God's work. But all of these are prophecies of judgment that explain, Paul says, here's the reason that we have the state of Israel that we have. Because of what God has said. Because of these prophecies from long ago. Now giving these prophecies and just explaining that God is hardening, that some are remnant are going to be saved by grace, but there's some who are going to be hardened. Just explaining that for Paul's readers, this is going to be important. Here's why. He, he gets to look to these Christians in Rome and he gets to save them you can look around at the spiritual state of Israel and you can know, like, God said this was going to happen. Like, when you see around you, as they did in their culture and their time, a, a place of, of difficulty for Christians to advance, a, a place where suffering for Christians was real, where it seemed like the church was marginal, and you get to look around and you get the comfort of knowing, God said it was going to be like this. 
We don't have to run to anxiety and worries if everything is off the rails and that history has gone a direction that it wasn't supposed to go. Like, God said this was going to happen. What, what a comfort in the midst of their world. He, he, he looks back at redemptive history, these Old Testament texts, and he says, hey, look at all that God has been doing. Redemptive history is moving in a direction as it has been, and the one who's guiding this all along is not Rome, it is not uh, Ahab and Jezebel, it's not the Babylonians, the Assyrians, it's not the Israelites, it's God. And this redemptive history is moving in a direction, it always arcs in a direction, and it's always Godward. What a comfort to people in a world that's overwhelmed with unbelief. So as they look around and they evaluate the state of Israel, they get again, get the picture that we don't have to evaluate this by what we can see, sense, feel, or whatever. We get to evaluate it by what God has said and what he is doing. And he gives them more solid truth so they don't have to hold on to what they're thinking. But it also reminds them of this. That as they look around and they see things that are going on, they can know that every part of it, none of it is outside of God's control. That this is the one, that if they trust in God, who is the sovereign one over all things. Not only the mercy, but also the hardening. He sovereignly hardens, we saw this in chapter 9, because he's God. And you can go back and reference all that. I don't need to go back into all that. He does it because he's God. And that may be hard to take in, but if he's not sovereign then there is no salvation for any, and I think it leaves us in a much more difficult state than if he's not sovereign. Why then, do the question always comes, why harden some and save a remnant? And the answer is still, I don't know. But the hands of God are held out all day long. He wants the word of Christ to go far and wide, and that faith then comes by hearing, hearing by that word of Christ. So the arms of God are held out to all people both the Jews and the Gentiles. And in the midst of that, those arms held out, we need to be slow with our evaluation. Slow with our evaluation of those arms. Why would you save some and not others? Because in whatever standard we're applying to those arms that are held out, chances are we're going to undo our own life. That standard that we hold out to them, we, those arms we can't hold up to ourselves and it be good for us. Be slow with your evaluation, but also know that not just that we might undo ourselves, but that more is going on than we know. That we might look out and be like, it's only a few. Why would God only say a few? Where does it say that? It doesn't. The, the picture of heaven is full. He is, Romans 8, 28, 29, he, he is bringing many sons to glory. So be careful with our evaluation. More is going on than we know. But we can know as we think about the, the hardening that God is working and the electing and choosing and foreknowing that God is doing, that this is the God who is holding out His arms, His hands. And that these hands are truly the only hands held out that are holy. That these hands are the ones that are held out are the only hands that are truly loving. That these hands that are held out are the only ones that are truly gracious. That these hands held out are the only ones that can and will save. We see lots of people holding out salvation in different ways. Holding out their arms to people. Saying, come this way. And over and over again, what history has shown us is that those arms and those hands, they're not holy, they're not good, they're not gracious, they're not loving. But Paul goes way back, and he looks at the hands and arms of God held out, and he says, they are gracious, they are holy, they have saved, and they will save. Church, this is the hands, these are the hands that you can trust. Don't trust any others. Let's pray together. God, we again are thankful for our salvation today. 
without your grace, where would we be? We're thankful today for the church, and we can spend a lot of time being frustrated with the state of the church in the world, or in our country, or in our town, or even just uh, nitpicky and ungracious toward our own body that you've made us a part of, Lord, but we praise you today that there is a remnant and that we get to be a part of it, that you are always at work in this world to bring yourself glory and that you always have a people in this world who trust you, who you are changing into your image more and more every day and who are speaking words of life to a dead and dark world, God. Without your grace, there truly would be none left. But we are left, and you are at work, Lord. And we pray for courage and for boldness, and even I pray for joy that we would look out at our task in the world to bring you glory through spreading the gospel, through making disciples, and that we would be filled with joy in our task and being a part of that, and that we would also be full of hope, that we would expect you and know that you are at work and that your arms are outstretched and that you are going to call people to yourself as we do this work, Lord. Thank you for setting your love on us just because, and help us to fear nothing that this world can throw at us, Lord. The gates of hell will not overpower your church. Thank you for your love, thank you for your grace, and thank you for giving us this mission. Pray that we would fulfill it with joy and bravery. Amen.